This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, UCP leadership hopeful Rebecca Schultz will join us to talk about the campaign and what she's expecting on October the 6th. Donald Trump facing a massive lawsuit for fraud in New York State. And about 800,000 homes in Canada have been labeled unsuitable. More people living in them than they have space for. And that number is likely very low. Uh, okay, anyway, let's uh, let's get serious here. We, we're... we're what, a little over a week now, I guess, October 6th, let's call it two weeks, um, before this UCP leadership race is over. And uh, I'm sure you've heard all the latest analysis and all the sorts of things, and it looks like we've got a clear front runner in Danielle Smith, but it's not 100%, and with the way the ballot shakeout, we're not really sure. It's going to be interesting. And then the next six or seven months in this province, you th I mean, politics is never dull in Alberta, but it's going to be... It's going to be hair on fire wild, I think, as we head into the next election. So uh, one of the candidates running for leadership of the UCP is Rebecca Schultz. And um, Rebecca joins us now. She's the MLA for Calgary Shaw. Uh, Ms. Schultz, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. I say it's good to talk to you again. Uh, it's been it's been a long time uh, that this campaign has been going on. As far as leadership campaigns go, it's been a while, a uh, little over a week, well, two weeks now. So just sum it up. If you can for us, as the old saying goes, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Did your plan survive? <laughs> Did you have to change? I mean, obviously never goes according to plan, but how far from plan did it go? How would you sum up the campaign? Yeah, you know, it, it's tricky because in a race like this, there are just so many variables and there is no secret. When I jumped in, not a lot of people knew who I was. Uh, obviously, I've been on your show before in, in the capacity of Minister of Children's Services, but you know, I was relatively new to the political scene, and so that was a challenge for us, for sure. But as we've traveled the province over the last number of months, it's really been, well, first of all, it's been exciting and encouraging that there are so many people who are optimistic about our party, not only leading us through the next election, but obviously we're in a time of uh, pretty great economic growth right now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just think, I mean, I, maybe the surprising thing I would say is we're still seeing momentum build. So even yesterday, five events um, from Pinoca through to Edmonton, meeting people who said either, hey, I've already voted for you and just wanted to meet you. Or, you know, I, I've been hearing about you and just wanted to hear what you had to say. I wanted to ask you about that because you've got a lot of really big name endorsements of Brad Wall of Saskatchewan, Rona Ambrose is running your campaign. So you've got a lot of really prominent and very highly respected conservatives in Alberta that have jumped into your campaign. So we often, you know, the headlines are one thing and then what you see out on the ground might be a little bit different. So you're continuing to see the momentum build. Do you think it's been a successful campaign or are you disappointed? You know, I'm proud of our campaign. I'm proud of our campaign team. Uh, it's a small team. We didn't have, you know, the typical machinery behind us, but we did have the support of amazing conservatives. Brad Wall is one of my mentors and my first boss in politics uh, back in Saskatchewan in his office. And Ronna Ambrose is somebody who I look up to greatly when I think about the type of leadership that I want to see in Alberta right now. 
uh, that's exactly what it is, which, you know, would be that leadership that has a vision for the future, something that people can get excited about um, and really a vision that people can get behind. And that's what I wanted to see, especially after the last couple of years. We've been through a lot. Uh, in your opening comments, you mentioning politics in Alberta is wild. That's true. Uh, and, you know, that's, of course, the case right now. But I think right now we have a very real opportunity as Conservatives to look to the future. Uh, there's finally a spring in the step of Albertans again, and uh, I think this is a great opportunity for us. Um, as I said earlier, there's a perception that we have a clear front runner that Daniel Smith is well out in front in this race. But with the preferential ballots, it's not a done deal until the votes are all cast. It's really tough to say how this could shake out. Uh, obviously, a first ballot win is the goal of any candidate. But what is your team saying? What are you looking at? What are you expecting? <laughs> what might you be hoping for? Well, I'll just say this. From week to week or day to day, we see different polls from different campaigns, and they're all saying slightly different things. So front runners and folks with big names as we started this race. Yeah. But uh, as you've also said, in a preferential ballot, anything can happen. And, um, you know, I guess we're to find out. But either way, I'm so proud of our team. I'm grateful for Albertans that we've been meeting right across the province. Uh, and I'm really, you know, grateful for all of their time. And, and the fact that momentum is building is really still exciting. And we'll all find out October 6th. Um, this week during our second round of interviews, um, I've asked each of the candidates about health care. And, and, and I don't mean, you know, reevaluating AHS and taking a look at the bureaucracy and the management and changing all that. I'm talking about this weekend. I mean, you know the story about the kid in Calgary that was lying on the ice for 45 minutes and couldn't get an ambulance. You've seen the pictures of the people lying on the floor at the ER garage at the Miz. So the question I'm asking is this weekend, we're going to have another story like that. We all know it. Um, what do you do now immediately so people who need medical care can get it? All those other infrastructural things are one thing, but what do you do now to help Albertans? Well, and I will say, I mean, this this is heartbreaking when we see stories like this. And I mean, I'm a parent of young kids. Uh, I've also been meeting with Albertans every day who have been raising the issues with health care. And I've been very clear that, yes, a lot of people want to see reform at AHS. But there are also some things that we have to do urgently to address the needs that we've got right now, whether that be um, in terms of primary care or uh, AHS uh, and or sorry, EMS. Uh, and urgent care. So I, I know that that's something that the Minister of Health is working on to address urgently right now. Um, you know, we've suggested things in the short term like um, mobile units and additional staff and incentivizing over time, breaking out inter-facility transfers and EMS in, into two separate systems uh, is one suggestion that has been raised by uh, paramedics right across the province to to help us make sure that we have the staff needed to address those urgent concerns. I think you know, what I also hear often is that it's not a case necessarily of more money. We do invest more in health care per capita than other comparable provinces. Albertans know that. Um, that's certainly not something that I've been hearing, but it really is going to take some creativity uh, and fast thinking. And we're not the only province in this position either. True, true, very true. Um the province, as you said, it, it, we're doing very well economically. Uh, once again, a wash mm -hmm. in, in energy revenues. Now, the premier, the outgoing premier, has announced the plans for those windfalls that we're currently experiencing. One, should he have done that as the lame, luckly, lame duck leader, um, or does he just need to be hands off? And two, if you become leader next month, do you follow his plan or do you bring in your own plan? How does that work? 
You know, I, I think that the government did commit to not making major policy decisions during the leadership race. Uh, in this case, I mean, I had presented a plan for the surplus and non-renewable resource revenues, really, which was, uh, simply speaking, 35% going towards debt repayment with a plan to pay down the debt within 10 years, 35% going to the Heritage Saving Trust, and 30% to address things like affordability, re-indexing personal income tax, with the, which the government has also done, uh, getting rid of the small business tax starting for two years. But, uh, you know, I'd be happy to continue something like that. Uh, and investing in investment attraction uh, and capital. So, you know, for me, uh, it was somewhat aligned with what I had already put forward. I think that, you know, we as a caucus have to sit down and, and decide what that's going to look like. I'd suggested putting that forward in a piece of legislation, so I'd love to have the support of my colleagues before I put that forward. Uh, but I think, you know, largely speaking, Albertans do want to see us get off uh, the energy roller coaster. Mm-hmm. We've heard this before that, um, you know, we want some predictability. We've, we've got great surplus right now. Um, and, you know, I would also say that when we're talking about the economy, it's not just oil and gas. It's great to see oil and gas uh, prices going up, of course. Uh, it's good from a budget perspective. It's good for our major industry. Um, but we're also seeing growth in agriculture, in manufacturing, in hydrogen, in film and television technology. So there is finally a spring in the step of Albertans that we haven't seen in, I mean, years. Uh, I would say our government did a number of things right to set us on that path. But um, this is something I don't think Albertans are going to want to chance in next year's election. What about Albertans, you know, direct help for Albertans dealing with really a soaring cost of living right now, inflation that we haven't seen in many, many years, the price of groceries are through the roof. Would there be some direct help for Albertans there? Yeah, and you know, one of my, well, outside of the commitment to uh, addressing the personal income tax uh, and re-indexing that, uh, one of the commitments that we did make was support for, for kids, for example, uh, and seniors alike, really, with activity costs. We know that the last couple of years has been really hard on the mental health and well-being of Albertans, um, just given what we've seen uh, throughout the pandemic. So this was a really uh, targeted way to get kids back in activities, things that they're passionate about. Uh, like I said, it, it started with kids. It came out of the Child and Youth Wellbeing Review, but it's not something that we need to limit to kids. I mean, seniors are feeling the same crunch. So that's something that I said I'd bring forward to my caucus colleagues. It's something that could help, you know, when parents are worried about the cost of a gallon of milk or, or filling their gas tanks, which luckily has gotten a little easier thanks to government uh, getting rid of the fuel tax. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Uh, but, you know, they want to put their kids in activities, and those are the types of things that keep parents up at night. I know I've heard a lot about uh, utility bills as well. That's something that uh, we haven't put forward a specific uh, fix for that in our platform, but I know uh, there are a lot of great ideas on how we can address whether that be transmission costs or reducing uh, monthly fees. So those are things that I'd be willing to look at as well. Uh, chatting with Rebecca Schultz, an MLA for Calgary Shaw and a candidate in the UCP leadership race. Last one, and then I'll let you go, and I appreciate your time. Um, 
this is all about unity. We know that the party was fractured and divided. So once this is done, and I think it's been a pretty divisive race, um, do you do you fall in line if you're not leader? Do you run as an MLA? Do you support the leader? How does that work for Rebecca Schultz, or do you abandon? I mean, what's your future plans if you're not leader? Yeah, so let me just take you back to 2019 when I decided to run, or 2018 when I decided to run for the nomination. I mean, we were in a time where we had an NDP government, and a lot of my constituents felt like that was because Conservatives flipped the vote. Uh, you know, we, we saw what we saw with floor crossings and, and a loss, and uh, my constituents were saying things like, don't cross the floor, remember who you work for, uh, we can't have an NDP government again. And I got involved because I thought we could do politics a little differently. Um, I think it's similar in this leadership race. I, I know that I have an important voice. I have a unique perspective and a fresh perspective on government and how it works, how we make decisions, how we connect with Albertans. So obviously I got in this to win it. Now, should I not be successful? I am still going to fight for the future of our province and our party. Uh, I have been campaigning since 2009. This is something that it means a lot to me, not only at the provincial level, federally, municipally as well. Uh, and so I will not, uh, you know, abandon my team and my constituents. I am nominated to run again. Like I said, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future of this party, and I'm not really one to pick up my toys and go home if I don't get my okay. way. Uh, so this is something that I care a lot about. I don't want to see another NDP government in this province, uh, I saw what happened to our economy, and I know that economy and optimism and hope and the entrepreneurial spirit of Alberta and the promise that if you're willing to work hard, you can be who and whatever you want to be. Um, I really saw what happened to that under the NDP government, and I'm not willing to let that happen again. Excellent. Okay, um, Ms. Schultz, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us. Right now, though, I want to get some details on what is truly a monstrous lawsuit. It's enormous. Um, you probably heard about it. The Attorney General of New York announcing yesterday a massive lawsuit against Donald Trump and his kids and his companies and some of his higher-ranking employees. It starts at $250 million, but it could go up much higher than that. Um, and it alleges years and years and years of fraud. As far as I understand it, manipulating the value of his various properties for various reasons um, for his own benefit. But let's get the details. We're going to chat with Matt Liebel, who is the department chair and a professor of political science at Western University. Matt, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. Sure. This really is a massive lawsuit starting at a quarter of a billion and possibly more. But New York says, you know what, if you go through it, decades of it, that's how much money we've lost, right? That's sort of where they're starting. Right. I mean, this is a long, long-term pattern um, by Trump, his organization, and it did involve his children. And um, it's fraud in many different ways. The the Attorney General of New York called it staggering fraud. And uh, there's, you know, there's lots and lots of evidence that they've been collecting. Um, things were sort of put on uh, on the back burner while Trump was president, and now it's sort of full steam ahead. Yeah, I want to ask you about that in a minute, but first of all, let's just, this lawsuit, as far as I understand it, it's, it's overvaluing some properties, undervaluing sometimes the same properties, basically depending on what will work out best, right? Right, so... Uh, Trump would buy a property for a, you know some sum of money, and then when borrowing against that property, um, 
or for other financial reasons, he would uh, value it at something much, much higher. Sometimes it would uh, double in a year or triple uh, very, very quickly, and then he could borrow against that sum and get some cash. Um, And uh, it's pretty staggering. In in some cases, he lied about the square footage to inflate uh, the value of uh, his his New York home. Uh, There's lots of evidence of this. And in other cases, like you say, overvaluing, some cases he would undervalue it and then he'd have tax savings based on what the value was. That's right. And and he has, in, in interviews over the years, talked about uh, his net worth. And he has, he, he, he's admitted to all these things publicly. And he so, has, you know, yeah. I think, I, I think the value of my property is sort of, it's part of it is mental. And it's, it's it comes out of, you know, how I'm feeling at the time. And so he, he, he's... Uh, God, a lot of his statements might come back to haunt him well, uh, in this case. This is the thing, Matt. Like, a lot of the stuff that's being alleged in this lawsuit is things that he's talked about publicly. I'm the king of debt, and uh, I, I don't pay tax because I'm really good at gaming the system and all the... I mean, a lot of the things he said full well. Yeah, this is... Uh, definitely, I, I take every advantage I can. So, I mean, this shouldn't be surprising, right? Uh, not at all. And and in the last uh, day or so, he hasn't denied that he did any of this. Yeah. And uh, his lawyers aren't denying it either. I think his his only defense is, uh, I paid those mortgages back. I paid them back uh, on time or early, and so there's no harm done. But yeah, there's could be lots of harm done to uh, other taxpayers in New York, to um, uh, other people who are looking to borrow money from banks and didn't get such favorable terms and all sorts of things. Now, it's a civil lawsuit at this point with um, the discussion being, well, we might refer it on to this court or that court for criminal proceedings. How does that break down? We know that it's a large, large amount of money that they're seeking, but why is it civil and not criminal? Some of the things he's talking about certainly sound criminal. Um, I th- the Attorney General of New York uh, does not have um, the, the authority to file criminal charges on this, and okay. she has referred it to um, federal investigators within New York and also to the Department of Justice, but it's sort of a matter of jurisdictions and things, and this is, this is as much as uh, the New York Attorney General can do at this point. Um, and some of the other ramifications based on this lawsuit, it's not just the money, it's also about really almost shutting down Trump's business operations for a period of time, at least in New York State, taking it out of his hands, the hands of some of the staffers that have been mentioned, his kids, essentially, he would not be able to operate this business in New York for, I think, a period of five years, right? That's right, and that's a big deal, and 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 also seeking that you know the, to put protections in so that uh, they couldn't you know um, uh, subversively be running companies right. um, under other people's names. Um, that's a big deal for you know Trump and the Trump organization to be barred from from business in New York, and um, you know the, there's also part of this is property in Florida, and so if this extended to um, well, I don't imagine the Attorney General of Florida would do anything about it, but it's possible that the Department of Justice uh, could do something about him doing this with his Mar-a-Lago property as well. Matt, I mean, obviously, and, and I'm sure you know what my text line looks like right now, and I kind of understand, um, he's calling it a witch hunt. Um, again, this is another witch hunt against Donald Trump. But at some point, I mean, just the the number of legal cases that have coming f- come forward, and this, the Attorney General in New York, I mean, she openly campaigned for the job as being anti-Trump and I'm going to get Trump. Is there a, a political component to this? This has been going on for years um, and now we're seeing this. So let's talk about the politics surrounding this. Sure. Um, 
the charge of it being political will come no matter who uh, who the investigator is. Um, and so, you know, yesterday was yesterday was a bad legal day for Donald Trump in lots of ways. Yeah. And in one case, there, um, you know, the a three judge panel overturned uh, the Florida judge, and and so the the Department of Justice can now go back to looking into those classified documents that were that were at his uh, Florida home. Um, so that's called political, but there were a majority of the judges were, were uh, Donald Trump appointees. Now, Letitia James certainly is vocally uh, anti-Trump. Yeah. And it is, it is, you know, an odd thing in American politics where you have uh, people in, in positions uh, like that um, attorney general that are elected. And so that sort of conflates the legal system with the political system and leaves uh, someone like that open to charges that it's political. But I think the most basic facts here are that it's pretty obvious that he committed some crimes and um, uh, that the the overvaluation of his properties is, is going to be pretty cut and dry. Yeah, and this lawsuit runs parallel to the one with his charitable foundation and some of the other tax procedures that he's put in place, which already have guilty pleas. So um, we already have precedent to the fact that there was some shenanigans going on here. It's not like this is completely out of line. Sure, there may be politics involved on her part, but obviously there's a case to be made. I think so. And, and that's, you know, in the, in the however many other legal battles that he has uh, at the moment, there's um, there's lots of evidence there. Yeah. And, and I think in, in a lot of cases, you know, prosecutors are hesitant to go forward, knowing that they'll have charges of um, of um, bias and that it's political um, thrown against them, and so they they want to be that much more sure before going forward. Which I think is what the uh, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of uh, the United States, that sort of kept him. Uh, quiet for a year or so. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're all watching that one closely, too. Matt, thanks so much. Uh, I really appreciate uh, your input on this. You're welcome. Really interesting story coming up now. We've talked about uh, many, many different angles to the housing crisis in Canada. You know, it has been called home ownership, getting out of the reach of, you know, millions of Canadians, just not attainable anymore. Um, and it's forcing Canadians to get, well, you could call it creative, but in a lot of ways, it's not, that puts a positive spin to it, at least in my mind. And this is not necessarily positive, not at all positive. We're talking about Canadians getting really crowded, not just creative. Um, interesting story on Global News, more than 800,000 homes in Canada don't actually have enough space for the number of people that are living in them. And this is all based on new numbers from, from Stats Canada and census surveys and all the rest, breaking down exactly how Canadians are living. And in some instances, it's it's really quite alarming. So let's get some of the details from Murtaza Hader, who is a Toronto Metropolitan University data science and real estate management professor. Murtaza, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, I mean, we should start by saying, you know what, when you talk about shared housing, that's not an entirely new concept with roommates and all the rest of that stuff. But in this situation that we're talking about here, it's different. We're talking about housing that's been deemed unsuitable. So, I mean, that's an official term, definition. What does it mean when we say people are living in unsuitable conditions? There could be at least three reasons um, for uh, dwelling to be unsuitable for individuals who are living there. Uh, one could ob- one is obviously that if the state of the dwelling structural 
a sure. state is not fit. Um, the other one is it could be very expensive relative to their incomes. And third could be that if the space that it offers is not sufficient for the size of the household that occupies it. And there's a definition around that as well, right? Which means that you have more than three people per bedroom. Do I have that right? I think something around um, along those lines. Essentially, it's the a threshold that's been established. It's, uh, these thresholds are arbitrary. But if you have more people uh, crowding into um, bedrooms, then you say, well, this place is not yeah. suitable. It gives and you that's some... where the problem lies. Yeah, it sort of gives you a guideline to follow. Now, um, and it shows that this varies in degrees. For example, we're seeing about 129,000 Canadian homes are short one bedroom, but almost 50,000 would actually need to add three bedrooms to the home in order to reach what we're calling the suitable stage. That's surprising to me. That seems like a really high number. A lot of people in a very small home, or at least way more people than the home is meant to maintain, um, and there's almost 50,000 of them. Are you surprised by those numbers? Uh, no, actually, I, I'm um, of the view that that is an undercount, um, primarily because these are the people who actually reported um, to the census that there are more people in the dwelling than there are supposed to be. But then if you think about non-family households where you have um, strangers living together, um, then that becomes the real challenge. How do you determine those? Because um, the census is responded by to, uh, to the by the person who actually has the lease. Yeah. Um, but then they have sublet illegally or without informing the landlord. And a dwelling that apartment that was suitable for maybe one or at best two people has six people living in it. But the census would not know because those would not voluntarily disclose yeah. that they are living there. Um, but in the in the cases where you have people disclosing. These usually are uh, family households, um, family like people are related, and, and, and there are more than one children, a child occupying uh, the room, or it could be a grandparent or a grandchildren. It's more pronounced in the um, First Nation housings on the reserves where the crowding is the highest, but it is found in, uh, in urban areas as well. Yeah, and when you mention that underreporting, and there's no way of really putting a number on it, right? Because like you say, people won't report it for a number of reasons, so it could be many, many times higher. We just don't know. Yes, it, I'm, I'm suspecting it would be much higher in apartment buildings located in low-income um, neighborhoods in a city where uh, housing is prohibitively expensive, where rents are very high. That's where you see this happening. There are ways to get to it. You can look at the water usage for those buildings to okay, see yeah. if the water usage is in line with the number of people stated to be living there. Um, but there's not, you don't expect census or a survey to report it to us. I've always heard that there's some cultural differences around this, Murtaza. Is that borne out by the numbers and by the census surveys where for some cultures it's more common to have, you know, Absolutely. several different generations of a family living together, whereas some, some cultures just don't do that? Absolutely. So um, if you look at areas um, around GTA, you would have Brampton, um, a neighborhood, uh, so a municipality near uh, in the in the Greater Toronto area. You would have um, um, Surrey, British in British Columbia near Vancouver. These are the urban areas where you will find multi generational households that have the highest concentration of three generations: grandparents, parents, and children um, living in in the same under the same roof. And that's more likely a cultural outcome. These are individuals from South Asia, and but again, the highest proportion of multi generational households are on First Nation reserves yeah. where this is much more pronounced. And, you know, it, the situation that we're looking at and how we got into this position, what is it? Is it the high cost of housing? Is it not enough housing? A combination? What do you think the reason for this is? I think the if you really look at the real reason that's not enough housing, 
um, when you have too many people competing for a limited number of rental accommodation, obviously the rents will increase. If you have too many people competing for owner, uh, owner to own a house, um, the list house, listed houses will then see um, um, sort of competition and, and bidding wars. Um, so at the end of the day, what you, it's not the high rent or not the high price that yeah. we should be more concerned about. We should look at the root cause of it. And the root cause of it is that we have not built enough housing since the early 70s. Our rate of construction and number of number, number of new units built per million people has declined since then. There's a small resurgence now in the last few years, but you're looking at a backlog of at least five decades. And there's another category which is almost as big uh, that's just as concerning, and that's not unsuitable conditions, but um, core housing. Do I have that right? Which is essentially Correct. living in unsuitable conditions, and you don't have a choice. You just can't afford to move on. Yeah, so core housing need comprises, again, is built up of these three uh, elements, uh, unaffordable unit, yeah. um, uh, structurally deficient unit, uh, or uh, crowd, crowded unit. So yeah, so it's, it's a uh, actually things have a little bit improved since 2016. I mean, it's hard to believe for many people, but between 2016 and 2021, uh, the census data shows that there are fewer people in core housing needs, or so fewer people facing affordability challenges. Um, and this is primarily because of the um, the programs that the federal government initiated after the. Um, um, the onset of the pandemic. So there has been some cash infusion. Uh, so the lowest income households have seen some gains in income um, during that period, which has improved um, the housing affordability scenario for them. And as a result, um, contributed to fewer people in the core housing. Well, at least some positive news there. Uh, Murtaza, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.